So if you have to remain intact as a civilization or as a nation, and how did you look at the idea of a constitution? How do we seize this opportunity of a constitution which was given to ourselves as a, a great intervener in the duel of wheels and uh, ensures that everything stays intact in our civilization? It's all right for us to say that we have a, a great democracy in the past 50 to 60 years, and uh, we have built into our constitution some freedoms which are inalienable. And the constitution says that uh, regardless of what the parliament may or may not do, there is something called the courts and the courts will declare on what is good and what is wrong and what is right. And therefore we have a freedom which can never be taken away from us. There are so many guarantees to ensure that freedoms are available to us the way we want them. So if the constitution says equality, it means go beyond your own little identities. And if you cannot share your identity, which are product of history, you must, I think, go back, go back in your own civilization, find out where we have been urged repeatedly that identity is our prison houses. But identity will be stepping stones, but beyond a period of time, beyond the stage, they become prison houses. Whatever be the identity, it could be language, it could be religion, it could be a faith. From the DC Heights of Mathematics lecture, which you heard just about a few minutes ago, to get rooted in uh, something which is so deeply relevant to our lives. I remember um, the great poet Rabindranath Tagore, who is said to have exclaimed that uh, existence itself is a perpetual surprise, that we live in a universe with mysteries beyond our reckoning. And which ever since uh, human beings began to walk on two legs and to fathom these mysteries, we gave to ourselves different names to describe the explorations of the human mind into the vast depths of the universe. Sometimes we call it science, sometimes we call it religion, and we give as, as uh, our respective civilizations prompted us to understand. And uh, with this kind of exploration, which has happened in different parts of the world, in different civilizations, and we come at a point of time in world history when Interestingly, we find that uh, the roots of religion as an identity begin to emerge. And I would probably split uh, my interaction with you today in three broad divisions. Because when I wanted to talk on religion identities in the constitution, I thought it was a subject which uh, a lawyer can handle very comfortably as one has handled matters relating to religion in, in, in the Supreme Court. But as it always happens for a lawyer as a, like a mathematician in the previous uh, lecture I was talking about, you get to know and you to confront the 
vague uncertainties of even what law is about. And uh, all the more when we get into the dizzy uh, corners of the constitution. So, let me begin first to talk about the idea of a constitution and why it has got some relevance for this whole subject of religion and identities. Today, uh, courtesy, some of the brave and adventurous legislations that the government of India has to introduce, touching upon uh, citizenship, etc. There seem to be a national upheaval and disagreement and a wide range of concerns. You can't put them in a uh, in an isolated, uh, unconnected way. Because uh, so, I thought let me try to go along with you and see what exactly the idea of a constitution and does it have any relevance for modern contemporary challenges in, in different civilizations. As a constitutional pundit, one can talk in very technical terms as to what is this constitution is about, but I am not proposing to do that kind of a punditary exercise. But it's important for us to know that at least for more than three to four centuries all over the world, or particularly Europe, that uh, in the midst of all those raging wars and violences, etc., which uh, surmounted Europe and presented a great challenge to the European intellectual traditions, philosophy, logic, inquiry. On the one hand, if you talk purely in terms of constitutional history, you can probably see how in different parts of Europe, different kingdoms, different uh, countries engaged in the task of making a constitution. But if you go a little deeper into it, why was that? that uh, civilizations across, let's say, Europe particularly, began to feel the need for an overarching legal framework called the constitution. And if moral ideas, religious appeal, and fundamental understanding of life and its beauty are sufficient enough for us to govern ourselves, why is that, that a felt need for an overarching fundamental document called the constitution? I suppose uh, all human civilizations uh, came to realize that uh, the power people over uh, others. I have power over somebody else as, an, as, a, as a trader or as a merchant. I have power over somebody else as a king. So there is social power, there is political power and also private power. Private power within relationships between human beings. So the ugly you know, emergence of private and public power and the need to tame public and private power as one fundamental, I think, appealing idea which has gone into several civilizational you know, urges to reach an idea called the idea of a constitution, which essentially means that you will govern all power within a community in accordance with certain codes of conduct. That I will not do what I want because I want to do it. 
whether I am a king or a queen or I am a trader or a missionary. So the taming of power, private and public, ordering them and subjecting them to certain codes of conduct is a fundamental idea which is behind the idea of a constitution. Within three to four hundred years, uh, one finds constitutional historians also say there are several waves of constitution making in the world. Without going into the details of the several waves of constitution making, we can at least look into two or three broad waves. I mean, those waves of constitution making emerging from what is famously celebrated in England as the Magna Carta, a pact between the king and the citizens that uh, liberty is something so precious. So from the value of liberty as something which cannot be simply bartered and taken away for the asking. So from the Magna Carta concepts then we move on to, to the, uh, let's say around the same period we have the War of Crusades, a huge uh, engagement of two famous two important uh, religions in the world, engaging in either decimating, exterminating or subordinating or subjugating or whatever you may call it. So Christianity and Islam engage in a great unending war and the huge amount of violence and oppression which was unleashed by this war of crusades. I am going to read a bit of it a little later. And then we read slowly the French Revolution and uh, it's very interesting to note that when the French Revolution came on some of the three famous uh, slogans, liberty, fraternity and equality, Robespierre was uh, the head of the uh, great French Revolution uh, who was, was said to have uh, guillotined several hundreds of people who were opposed to the revolution, also fell a victim to the, to the guillotine at a later point of time. So in France around that time, Thousands and thousands upon churches were demolished and a new church was sought to be erected called the Church of Reason. So the old church which is based on faith and Christianity must yield to the Church of Reason. So you will find again in Europe, the post French Revolution, the emergence of capitalism, a new social order emerging, ordering, reordering human relationships in regard to trade, industry and so on and so forth. One of the historians called R.S. Tani written a book on, on capitalism, religion and the rise of capitalism saying how the backdrop of religious history in Europe was also responsible to a, to a large extent and the emergence of capitalism and how both got so intrinsically wedded with each other. Then we move on after the post French Revolution and the capitalistic emergence, the colonial expansions around the world. So each one of the European nations are trying to expand colonially, very probably not very different from the earlier uh, expansions of the religions. For instance, if you go back to at a point of time when Constantine, the emperor became the king of Rome and he called now Rome is no longer a non-Christian civilization, but it will be a Christian civilization, it will be a Christian kingdom. So ever since Constantine called Rome, Rome a Christian kingdom and you will find that uh, the uh, this division between religion and state, religion and politics got completely, uh, you know, vanished. So when it comes to the post-capitalist uh, era, and you will find uh, different different voices speaking in different ways as to why there is a new way of looking at uh, church and state, 
and why there is a need for a freedom of individuals. So with the amalgam of all these forces in Europe playing its own internal dynamics of uh, the church versus state predominantly, you will find uh, the idea of a constitution as an independent and neutral idea far away from church and the state slowly emerging. And uh, soon thereafter with the colonial expansions which uh, you will find the first world war and the second world war uh, taking a, a huge toll of human, human life. And between the first and second world war you again find European reorganization of European states and European countries and with uh, with the German, uh, you know, uh, empire building ambition in, in through Hitler. And the World War II, then we find the land into a different, uh, you know, a global framework, namely the human rights framework. So in the, in the midst of all these uh, waves of constitution making, one idea which has strongly emerged is that if people have to live in a community free from fear and oppression, and that liberty and freedom must be ordered and ordered in order that the ability to be live freely is, is not uh, at the mercy of somebody but it is freely available. So the idea of a constitution being the ability, the competence and the inclination of people to order their liberty and freedoms, if that is fundamental to the idea of a constitution. Why is that we need to talk about religion, identities and the constitution? On the one hand, we can have a pure constitutional, doctrinaire understanding of a constitution. But on the other hand, if you look at constitutions and idea of that willingness and the inclination of every civilization to go beyond force and violence in ordering people's lives and affairs. And if religion in the past for any reason whatsoever, whether it's Christianity or Islam, any one of the religions, have uh, survived and probably they've grown, if at all, as uh, world religions only because state and church became one and they continue to be one. So if in the past, if uh, neither religions could have grown or survived without having political and state power. But then we reach a point of time when we have realized that uh, when a state and church become so in, you know, involved with each other, then it can be a diabolic you know, a connection. So this very idea that we must move away from the diabolic connection of state and church as one entity, I think is one idea which permeates the idea of a constitution. But then if you look at human life generally at any point of time, the kind of discoveries and inventions we have made as civilizations, whether in the field of science or in any other field, and then we have done it through one important medium called language. Language uh, is something which, uh, uh, which is so generative and creative. And, uh, but for different kinds of languages, though with common, common uh, let's say, norms and foundations, language is yet another identity which, have, uh, which people probably cannot shed with. Therefore, you look at different kinds of identities, identities which are like language, culture, apart from religion, a region is an identity. So we have all kinds of identities which have been, which we have built and for ourselves, important for civilizational movements, but uh, if they are important, but also they are obstacles. 
So how many of these identities we can shed, we can barter, we can give up? The answer is uh, probably not many of them. So if you ask uh, a diverse community such as India to live under one language, you'll find that immediately, well, no, it's, it's impossible. So on language is such a both cementing but also a dividing identity. So also we have cultural, fine cultural differences, which are important as identity but also uh, as important for the purpose of growth as an individual human being, as a collective, but as you see, they are also, as I said, social obstacles. So we have this kind of social phenomena which human beings have created, which are both, which have their positive and hostile dimensions to growth and civilizations themselves. So I'm not surprised when Kabir, one of the greatest, uh, you know, uh, voices in our in our country, a great accommodating voice who went beyond. Uh, narrow religious lines. He said, looking at the grinding stones, Kabir laments, in the duel of wheels, nothing stays intact. It's a beautiful passage. It says, looking at the grinding stones, in the duel of wheels, nothing stays intact. So he was talking about the duel of wheels. And he was talking about the duel of wheels, meaning all those dividing elements in, in, in a civilization. It can be language, it can be religion, at any one of them. So the, if the, in the dual appeals, nothing stays intact, then what is that the constitution like this can do for us to keep, to ensure that in the dual appeals, something remains intact. So if you have to remain intact as a civilization, as a nation, and how did you look at the idea of a constitution? How do we seize this opportunity of a constitution which were given to ourselves as a, a great intervener in the dual of wheels and uh, ensures that everything stays intact in our civilization. But it is not as simple as that. It's easy, it's easy to say that uh, you know there are there are a larger number of contemporary writers and thinkers like uh, and, and engagements like interfaith uh, you know movements. And um, everyone is trying to find out whether, notwithstanding the differences among religions and civilizations, can there be some kind of a unifying force, a path, uh, a graph, which one can draw to ensure that uh, the divisions do not uh, decimate human civilizations. I'll just uh, want to take you, in order to understand it, I know it's, it's important to know what has happened in the rest of the world. And uh, once you look at what has happened in the rest of the world for over more than 15 to 1600 years in the name of religion, and if only we know that, why does it happen? Perhaps uh, as a good uh, fashioner of medicines, we can use a constitution in a way, and India can probably uh, lead in, in some sense of the way how these uh, diversities can become uh, play fields for rejoicing and not, uh, not uh, fences which divide us. So I'm just going to take you through some very disturbing parts of our history, which, uh, um, which is so deeply disturbing that when I started looking at this subject, I thought, as I told you, uh, I can talk about it from a from a purely constitutional lawyer's point of view. But I said, the more you look at it, uh, 
it, the more it unraveled and the, the difficult dimensions and complex issues. I'm not here to uh, denigrate or to put in low esteem uh, any particular religion. But then you can't forget this fact that certain religions in the past, because of their very foundations, had, uh, could not have avoided violence in their interaction with the rest of the world. For instance, in, 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 in the Quran, uh, in one of the verses, verse number 3.12.13, it is attributed to Prophet Muhammad. This is what uh, he was uh, revealed to. And Allah commands Muhammad to say to the disbelievers, I quote, You will be defeated and driven together into hell, a foul resting place. You have already seen a sign in the two armies that met in battle, one fighting for God's cause, the other made up of disbelievers. With their own eyes, the former saw the latter to be twice their number, but God helps over he will. Then in another verse called the The sword verse, as it is called, perhaps it is well known as a sword verse, and uh, this is what it says. Wherever you encounter the idolaters, kill them, seize them, besiege them, wait for them at every lookout post. But if they repent, maintain the prayer, and pay the prescribed alms. Let them go on their way, for God is most forgiving and merciful. So these are parts of the Quran, the most holy book for the Islam which are quoted you know, time and again to say that and to paint Islam in a way that Islam has nothing but violence as its eternal essential core. But the other parts of the story, namely where the caliphate, the caliphate begins to expand its empire. And one common factor which now becomes common among Islamic expansion and, and Constantine became the Roman emperor I'll read you a few other passages where what happened uh, in the name of what is called uh, a very interesting expression was coined. That is, those who are lesser than you. They're called the dhimis. So dhimi, uh, how are they treated? Before I, and, and this is how Umar won a caliph in the year 634 to 644, a few uh, decades after Prophet Muhammad. He says, humiliate them, but do them no injustice. But then what are the, who are these dhimis? Dhimis are those who receive, who deserve no respect. So they must be subjugated to all forms of oppression. And they must be subjugated to forms of oppression, namely, you will wear a particular kind of dress. You will distinguish yourself as a lesser in, and then you will deserve no equality. And this concept of dhimmi was not only, you know, which was perceived and uh, created, uh, generated by Islamic Republic, but borrowed later by Christendom as well. So you will see a long line of history where humiliation, denigration, oppression, and not equality. So humiliation, oppression, and denigration, if that has to prevail as an order of the day, and then essentially you will find that in the world history, who received the brunt of all this? The Jewish community. The Jewish community received the brunt of all this from both Islam and Christendom over a long period of time. And so also even a thinker like Karl Marx had to write a book called The Jewish Question. So ultimately we come to the ghettoization of Jews. And you see the massacre and, and, and the 
and the post-World War Hitlerite expansion and how the creation of Israel, so on and so forth. I'm not getting into that story. But what I want to say is that in the, in the essential practices of these two or three religions, if there was always one predominant value, namely that I am the master of all truth. My truth is the only universal truth. And any other truth does not deserve to be even given the, the status of a truth. If that was the basis on which these religions have fought all over for more than 1500 years, I suppose it is important for the Europeans to first realize. I'll, I'll, I'll talk about why we did not have, Indian subcontinent did not have that unfortunate you know, experience which Europeans had to go through. And therefore, we probably did not move into an idea of a constitution from the way the Westerners had reached it in, in a different perspective. I'll talk about a little later. Therefore, if the, uh, the idea that my truth is, is a superior, the idea that other truths are inferior, if this is essential, the kernel of some religions, and if that experience of the practice of religions in the European continent has been a major cause, in my understanding, a major cause for the birth of the idea of a constitution, then if we mechanically transplant the rights and guarantees which became essential in the European understanding of the idea of a constitution in a country like India, and what is likely to happen. It's all right for us to say that we have a, a great democracy in the past 50 to 60 years, and uh, we have built into our constitution some freedoms which are inalienable, and the constitution says that uh, regardless of what the parliament may or may not do, there is something called the courts, and the courts will declare on what is good and what is wrong and what is right. And therefore, we have a freedom which can never be taken away from us. There are so many guarantees to ensure that freedoms are available to us the way we want them. So we therefore want to look at this essentially a, a, a Western experience generating idea of a constitution question is, does it have universal value? Does it have universal relevance? Or does it require this idea of a constitution guaranteeing rights? Does it require some kind of a transplantation or transmutation having regard to the religious and large, the huge history of Indian religious uh, you know, civilization? These are some moot questions. But then if you talk about these issues, we again land into a huge paradox, namely, that we have drawn to ourselves a constitution which is said to be both secular and also contains certain essential elements of protecting rights relating to religion. But I'm not very clear, because as a practicing lawyer looking at what the Supreme Court has done over, a, over 40 to 50 years, if, uh, because very often you come across this, this uh, nagging question that regardless of the right to equal equality in matters of faith guaranteed in the constitution, why is that one particular faith and, and, and institutions of worship belong to one particular faith, namely the Hindu temples alone are being subjected to a, a state control. And increasingly one finds uh, this question being raised uh, over and again and again in, in various forums and, and, uh, and also the Supreme Court. Why is this question even, even raised at all? And does it have a 
relevance in the context of real practice of equality under the Indian constitution relating to faiths. So when you look at, look at little deeper and even the guarantee in articles 25 to 30 of the Indian constitution. Constitution says all of us have right to you know, religious freedom, profess and propagate our religion. But uh, the word profess means declaring publicly. Why is that the constitution says I have a right to publicly declare I belong to this faith? Because in the rest of the world it happened that if you publicly proclaim, you would not be able to practice your religion and to propagate. So why in India? You look at the, the great bhakti movement in India from the early 5th century onwards up to the 16th to 17th centuries. We hear about the four sampradayas called the commonwealth of love, the Vallabhacharya, you know, Ramanuja, Madhvacharya, so on and so forth. So they are called the commonwealth of love. There's great sampradayas in our country. So given this kind of a history, and uh, do we need to propagate? So propagation was not conceived in India. Has it been conceived in the rest of the world? You can probably look at China and Japan. The idea of propagation was something alien because uh, uh, somebody who studies Japanese understanding of religion, they live in a multi-religious layer. There's no particular religion as understood in the Latin language, or the Western language. So given this kind of an Asian understanding of living at within multi-religious or multi-faith complex, this professing and propagation was unnecessary in the Indian, Indian context. So for whom does this right to profess and propagate religion really matter? So if, so if Hindu Dharma or Hindu religion did not, let's say, go about conquering the rest of the world only for the purpose of imposing Hindu, Hindu viewpoints of view on the rest of the world, we did not require it. Hindu religion probably did not require it at all. So I want to read out uh, in this context, I, I uh, wrote a small piece on propagation without conversion. I understand the Indian constitution, while guaranteeing the right to propagate or profess, certainly the constitution did not envisage a right to convert. Why I want to talk about it is that the moment you stand on head, fundamental freedoms of the constitution, then you enter distortions of the rights granted by the constitution themselves. So if the right to propagate and profess are important because I want to be free from external intrusion oppression, but that does not mean that the right to profess and propagate have a right to engage in conversion. So over a large period of our recent history, the controversy has also centered around this issue. So if conversion has taken place, because uh, because these are very controversial issues. It's very difficult to take a neutral, objective point of view on some of these issues. As I understand, there, can be, there can't be anything like a neutrality and objectivity in these matters. If I think that uh, propagation is fine, well, I think uh, it must be handled at a different level. Now, let me read out of a bit of what I wrote on this uh, uh, for, a, for an article in a journal. The Sena minds uh, who understand the universality of spiritual experiences also understand the need for a common protective framework for all faiths and foundations of equality and non-discrimination. The need to protect many truths 
lie in the essence of truth itself. This must proceed on the premise that those wish to propagate their faith will do so, not out of ignorance of or contempt to other faiths, not because that the converting faith believes in propagation as a competitive occasion of soul saving and mandated by their faith, not because minus propagation, religious freedom itself will be at peril, but essentially because that the authenticity of the core values of all faiths, in so far as they constitute the discoveries of all soul searching or voyages of truth, must be freely exchanged. If there can be propagation without denigration, so be it. Sociological and anthropological and other historical studies may be relevant if one is engaged in confronting claims made about exclusive superiority of one faith over another. Discourses on proof in this connection will then necessarily enter into contentious areas. Religious proof will then claim to have a special status beyond scientific or philosophical proofs. One set of religious truths can claim greater superiority and condescendingly too. Wide range of comments are made on even honest attempts made to explain the entangled web of issues concerning religious superiority, propagation, proselytism. And what are religious truths? Are religious truths subject to scientific scrutiny? Is scientific scrutiny an inappropriate and inadequate tool to deal with religious truths? Or there and can there be only one set of religious truths? If there can be plurality of religious truths and such plurality, plurality alone can be the grand testimony of human creativity and its ability to experience, perceive and articulate, then what is propagation except joyful sharing? William James in his Varieties of Religious Experience and Isaiah Berlin, concerned about multiple truths, were engaged in the same pursuit of affirmation of plurality, namely plurality of human histories and understandings. The task of answering all these questions is not merely political. Any attempted answer with the state involvement need not be necessarily communal, as it was noticed that objectivity and neutrality are difficult values in practice and delicate attainments. If assertions towards religious truths are themselves antithetical to human freedom and liberty and to diverse claims, historically well stated, tested and founded, the state would not be turning a wrong chapter by asking of such propagationists to practice moderation, accommodation and be willing to be subjected to reasonable restraints. The very concept of reasonable restriction is a commentary on human nature and its untamable audacities. At one level, namely from the level of the perennial and universal value of exchange and communication, propagation can be a noble pursuit. At a different level, calling the other faith a lesser entity, it can be akin to dominion and power and thus religious colonialism. Is there a room for religious colonialism in contemporary times? The rights and the human rights instruments to choice of belief or religion is against the state or other religions dictating against free choice and deserve not to be used by conscious conversion agendas. If otherwise understood, the right of choice to abandon or change faith will stand on its head. 
in the marketplace of choices, there is no room for bullish trading. Constitutions and human rights instruments generally propagate, protect propagation as part of the right to faith. But why propagation? Why should it be a right? What autonomy rights, identities of individuals and grounds are involved in it? Will right to practice one's faith or religion wilt if propagation is curtailed? Can we compare the need for of organic elements of nature, trees, plants, for earth and water as sustaining elements to propagation as a need of practicing one's faith? Practicing, I understand, one's faith will not wilt if propagation is not part of it. Every faith or claim to truth does not thrive on propagation. People can draw fences and live comfortably within. But there is an inert urge of the human mind to share. If sharing of the beauty of one's practice is seen more as a preservation of the beauty and dissemination of beauty, propagation makes sense. Poetry, philosophy, science, morality are all part of sharing. And the joy of sharing is the noblest aspect of human consciousness. Rumi, a great uh, poet, puts it beautifully when he says, The human soul is a meeting place of doubt and difficulty. And there is no favorite to be rid, uh, rid of doubt and difficulty except by being in love. Being in love is sharing. Again, when he says, Every prophet and every saint are the way, each leads to God, all are one, he talks about sharing and not destroying or denigrating. The domain of conviction about one's faith is beyond penetration by the state and so by the other faiths. Emerging out of the womb of this conviction and with the noblest of urges to share truths that can be shared and experienced, that can be transmitted, can be another independent domain. Within this, within this pure urge domain of propagation, when comparisons and denigrations of others' faiths occur, the road to lapses is inevitably laid and propagation loses its holy mantle. It is felt, therefore, that propagation is the joy domain of human sharing and conversion is spiritual or religious colonialism and built only on hegemony and decimation of other faiths. The constitutional protection of propagation is to be confined to the noblest engagement of detached sharing. Talking to dolphins is propagation, catching fish is conversion. This is how I put, I understand how the constitutional scheme has, uh, is guaranteeing equality to all faiths. Now, if I was trying to point out and say that uh, the idea of a constitution as a born out of several experiences of civilizations all over the world. And if it's also an amalgam of uh, the product of several civilizations, it's very difficult to, you know, dissect uh, the, the product of each civilization into the idea of a constitution. I think it's important not to dissect it also. If the European experience or the Asian experience or the universal experience today points only in one particular direction, namely that the idea of a constitution is important for all civilized communities to live in shared understanding. I think the idea of a constitution is this idea namely, that we must live in shared understanding. So if equality and solidarity is what is about shared understanding, the idea of a constitution is also about shared understanding. But we move away from the idea of a shared understanding or constitution as merely a power organizing instrument, then we have too many issues. 
So we have in a country like ours, which is diverse uh, historical, you know, uh, uh, elements, which probably cannot be uh, just uh, shunned out like that. Even though many people would like to do it, even regardless of the importance and and uh, the greatness, the significance of, of the con- the contribution of Indian civilization to to world civilization itself. So when in 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 contemporary times. Uh, there are there are certain tensions, namely that uh, on the one hand we have the international human rights instruments which are brought into constitutional dialogue as something which is integral to constitutional dialogue itself. The other hand, because over a period of time the Hindu religion by itself has received has been seen as re- at, the, at the receiving end for a variety of reasons, and there is a backlash and there is a resistance which is happening. So whether it could be a well-meaning resistance, it could be a resistance which probably which must be understood in, in more than one ways instead of being called a mere label with all kinds of labels like Hindutva or, or, a, or a right extreme or a Hindu right or whatever one may call it. You can probably have all kinds of uh, descriptions of the, of the emergence of a certain wave of the Indian faith. So we are not going to deal with it by merely giving them descriptions or designation. I think we must try and go beyond that. That's why we find a huge difference among, let's say, uh, a certain class of historians in our country. So historians themselves are so divided. And if I have an agenda looking at creating an Indian history for a particular you know, part to be followed, then I will have my norms of history in a particular way. If I look at history differently, then I have different norms. So as some famous historian said, objectivity is not neutrality. And then history is not again a holy science, right? Therefore, we have all these problems. So in the midst of all these problems, while the rest of the world, I, I look at the rest of the world, like particularly some of the European continents, where owing to international freedom of migration of human beings. I, I, I remember having read by an uh, uh, English physicist uh, called David Peat, who went to live in America with a tribe called Barefoot uh, uh, American, barefoot tribes and Indians, and um, while living with them, learning their medicine and, uh, and the way of living and the culture, he also tried to understand how for more than 5,000 years in human history, people have migrated from probably from Africa, all over Asia to Siberia and then to the end of the northern world and back to America and to South America. And uh, he says this wave of migration at a time when we did not have a GPS system to guide people, was essentially guided by the human urge to discover. And then what kind of discoveries? Discover the, the, the universe in a way more than one way one can probably discover. So when you want to curtail this innate urge of discovering on the one hand by saying, this is what Indian history has been and is what Indian history should read as. So you can probably invoke uh, Karl Marx to come and say that uh, India was a stagnating civilization. But uh, probably he was never lettered in the 5,000 year old of Indian civilization. Today we find somewhere in the southernmost part of a country, like a place called uh, uh, in, in Tamil Nadu, some archaeological discoveries have taken place, show that a huge connection between what happens in Tamil Nadu and the Harappan civilization, probably much beyond that. So I think it's important for us to know that human migrations, whichever way they appeared, it should not be a matter for our concern. So I think it's important for us also to put, put to an immediate end 
the great unnecessary dialogue going on about Aryan invasion, the Dravidian you know, civilization and so on and so forth. That this kind of a debate is only a debate which is going to divide us continuously forever and will not be in any manner of speaking a treasure house for you know advancing our civilization in any manner. So therefore in this context the kind of needless and then debates and then controversies and issues which have been generated in the past 40 to 50 years in our country again under the power of the constitution within the constitution as, as a protector or a shield and that's questionable. So there are, as a constitutional lawyer you enter the court and say look yeah, here here we are rights under articles 29 and 30 I have a right to administer in educational institutions of my own choice because I'm a minority you will enter the, all those little little whispers in the Supreme Court how beyond the courtroom dialogues, beyond the judgments of the court or what happened in the recent judgments in Sabarimala or in the Ayodhya cases. So beyond all that, there is a huge division among lawyers and judges and that division is the undercurrent of how you, the reality really lies. That probably will never be seen by the rest of the world. But what is written in judgments and what is probably articulated in courts as persuasive arguments is picked up as the most visible part of uh, the story is being talked about in the courts. So I want to talk about, about all this is that uh, we have enough storehouses of knowledge and wisdom in our country. As I talked about the, the, the four sampradayas called the commonwealth of love. So we have enough storehouses of wisdom and, uh, in, in our country which need to be gathered in a more objective, neutral way and if possible to be transmitted as a constitutional values. If constitution says the right to equality, it essentially means I understand if I want to talk like a, a, a person engaging in religious talk with secular talk, with constitutional talk all put together, I mean what is ultimately equality but what love? So if the constitution says equality, it means go beyond your own little identities. And if you cannot share your identities which are product of history, you must, I think, go back, go back in your own civilization, find out where we have been urged repeatedly that identities are our prison houses. But identity will be stepping stones, but beyond a period of time, beyond the stage, they become prison houses. Whatever be the identity, it could be language, it could be religion, it could be a faith. So these are, these are essentially foundations for a leap. So once you have gone, taken the leap, then you don't need any identities at all. Precisely what a great saint in contemporary times, South India called Ramana Magari said, asked the question, who am I? So somebody may ask, why are you bringing all these questions into a constitutional discourse? I suppose constitutional discourse, if it is alien and as far away it is removed from all this understanding, the constitution will be a dry mechanical you know, structure without any life into it. Therefore, when we talk about uh, the current contemporary tensions in India, they are a product of a particular direction taken by governments, people, educational institutions and intellectuals, historians all put together. So in, in the midst of this, I think there is a great need to understand uh, the idea of a constitution from an entirely different point of view. And it is this idea of understanding constitution is not merely a matter for scholars and lawyers and, judge, and judges, but I think it's essentially for the common, common human being in, in India. And how can we do that? Srijan, I think, I, when I came to contact with Srijan for the first time, I, I heard a talk by Raj, Mr. Raj Vedam, and I was so mesmerized by the talk which he gave. 
on Indian civilization and history of Indian civilization. Then I spoke to uh, Rahul and asked him, can we do something about enlarging the kind of audience you're inviting for your talks and look at a larger number of, uh, you know, sp- uh, subjects which can be probably brought into your audience. And that's why I'm here today. I'm, I'm, I'm neither a great, uh, you know, uh, scholar in, of religion, in, nor I can claim to have a, a, be a great scholar of history. But as a, as a constitutional lawyer who is engaged in understanding law, the constitution, and in that process to understand what is life and why is that we are, we talk about all this. I think I began, uh, it becomes an important journey uh, for me personally and to, uh, to probably interact with the, with the rest of, of the community and say that uh, let us start looking at the constitution in more than one way than merely the, the Western world has told us to look at it. And when I use the word Western world, I'm not using it in a denigrating sense. It's only a question of history and geography. It is not a question of superior versus inferior. Because for after all, every civilization has discovered the truths, the treasures of the, of, of the universe. I, and I suppose the human mind, wherever it has lived, regardless of race and religion, the human brain, whatever way it has been, you know, it has evolved. It's a storehouse of great wonder. So therefore, if if you can, if only need to make a few small steps in, in understanding the constitution as a great instrument in, in taking these few steps, I think India would have, would have done far, far better. And uh, we need to therefore change the old discourse of the constitution and uh, on the one hand. But when I say all this, and as I also said, the idea of a constitution in the Western experience, in the European experience, because of the conflict between the church and the state. So Christianity always thought that uh, unless state is part of its power, the church would never become imperial. So that's why you find the expansion of the papal, the, 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 you know, the, the Vatican over a period of time. So, so church and state, political power and social power. And beyond this political power and social power is the power of the human mind. And what faith will you ultimately believe and will you practice? So having said all this, I understand that uh, if the question as I said about great saint Ramana Maharishi asks, ask, who am I? I think that is one important way to understand. If I want to use my faith into which I am born to be a stepping stone, there I have that right to do that. But if my faith says that you have no stepping stone at all, then I think that faith ought not to prevent me from going beyond my faith. And that is what the constitution guarantees to us. That is the individual freedom to understand your own faith, practice it, experience it. And if necessary, go beyond it. And once you go beyond it, then you have that kind of an experience which you will share with the rest of the world. And that kind of a sharing, I think, is what constitution says about propagation. So it is not any sharing of what I, I quote from my scriptures is one level of sharing. Now let me ask another question. Now we have a constitution which has been amended several number of times. And uh, some constitutional pundits say unlike the US constitution, which was hardly amended ever since 1776, probably about 15-20 times. There are huge amendments of the constitution. And the constitution can be easily amended. Look at some of the neighborhood countries like Pakistan, or Bangladesh, or Turkey, or some of the you know, African countries where constitutions are being amended 
like the toilet sheets which are being thrown into you know waste paper basket so but if constitution is so easy a document to be amended and if so it what is the worth of a constitution so regardless of the huge number large number of amendments the indian constitution has undergone it still remains intact as an idea and i think that's because the idea of the constitution has sunk so deep in our psyche in our psychology in the indian mind the idea of a constitution has something which you must live by and live together and live with has so deeply you know entrenched in our mind therefore we will not forsake it but then there are certain things in history which cannot be rewritten a constitution can be rewritten for better if it is necessary but you can't rewrite the rig veda you can't rewrite the quran you can't rewrite the bible you can write commentaries on them if you are permitted to do so perhaps there are perhaps there are no permission to write commentaries on the quran or maybe bible i have no idea about it so certain documents which are products of history cannot be rewritten at all but what can be rewritten is what can be learned from those from those great scriptures on the one hand of course we have a dialogue uh, because of the differing explanations about religions uh, on the one hand about semitic religion the prophetic religion the indic religion so on and so forth i am i am not interested in going into that aspect of the matter of course they are part of history you cannot just unmantle them dismantle them but you can transcend them therefore if certain part of history cannot be rewritten but we can write afresh what we learn from the the imponderables which have been given through this uh, through this uh, experience of history so the idea of a constitution therefore is something which can be rewritten but rewritten through what is called the sharing part of human experience so it doesn't have to be rewritten because somebody wants to have a larger you know position as a president or the prime minister no that is not been done at all but it can be rewritten for different reasons i i while while doing a bit of reading on these issues and as i get more and more you know engaged in understanding the religion as a, as a dimension as a, a great significant dimension of the human mind i came across a, a, a book which talked about the contribution of genghis khan to the to universal equality of religion i mean it was surprising to me and then when i went into that literature i found that uh, genghis khan had a law had a, pract- a law while well, uh, proclaimed that while the basic law of the mongol empire is to be uh, respected but he had a law called the equality of religion uh, law and who and uh, whom did genghis khan inspire a very interesting note that uh, when everybody talks about the right in the, in the us constitution it is said that the state shall not make any law respecting religion that's called the establishment clause in the us constitution it is found that thomas jefferson who was one of the drafters of the us constitution and the great exponents of the us constitution was inspired by genghis khan and then you go back to mongol empire where in the mongol empire there was a toleration of faiths very interesting to read that so on the one hand we have so as it is said world history is said to have started from greek rome then europe and then probably ended somewhere in the universal declaration of human rights the rest of the world did not exist at all so when you find that the rest of the world did exist in more than one important sense of civilization then genghis khan is one such person who contributed to the idea of toleration whether you like it or not so what i want to point out is 
in, in, in the variety of civilizations we had all over the world, there are people and people who understood the essential kernel of sharing as the most important element of bondage of human civilizations. And that sharing when it comes out of freedom, and that when sharing comes out not because I believe that my religion is superior to your religion, that sharing has an intrinsic value of immense significance. And can we say, therefore, as a, as a, as a nation, as an Indian nation, which all, which all its wealth of, of religious and spiritual treasures, can we say that we will now try to look at the constitution as a constitution, as a document, namely uh, a, a, great, a, a great opportunity of sharing and not uh, denigrating or decimating or exterminating. And that's a very difficult question to in practice, but I'm sure. But if, as more and more people begin to understand that the right to practice a religion or a religion or a faith is, is something beyond what, we have, what has been given to us. So once we understand what has been given to us, religion is only, as I said, to again repeat it, because I think it comes repeatedly in mind in, well, arguing some of the matters in the court, they're all stepping stones. And every human being ultimately realizes within my Hindu tradition or my Islamic tradition, Christian tradition, I will realize that this is beyond this. There is something which, which prevents me from going beyond this. Then I must renounce it. I must go beyond it. I must transcend it. And that is nothing to do with religion. It is at that stage, I think, the Indian constitution says, you have a right to equality of all faiths. So if faiths accommodate this element, then I think there are faiths which are nobler in, in content. But when faith says that I will not accommodate this element of you know, transcending, then I think the constitution will have to probably say, you are not that faith which would like to give any protection or grant any security. That's where tensions will arise. How do you manage those tensions? It's a big question. I just wanted to read how um, this book talked about uh, 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 what Genghis Khan has done. Uh, the Mongol law forbade anyone to disturb or molest any person on account of religion. Similarly, Jefferson's law prescribed that no man shall suffer on account of the religious opinions or belief. Genghis Khan's law insisted that everyone should be left at liberty to profess that which pleased him best. Jefferson's law echoed this in the statement that all men shall be free to profess their opinions in matters of religion. The first law of Genghis Khan and the Virginia statute were both similar in spirit too, but different in wording from the first amendment to the US constitution which reads, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. While doing a bit of reading on this, and assimilating my thoughts on the subject, uh, said uh, looking at the history of uh, intolerance in within Christianity, Islam, and uh, the Jews are the most persecuted lot in, in world history. I found, uh, to my surprise again, uh, like the Genghis Khan surprise, uh, we all as uh, political students of political theory, we, we are told that uh, writers such as John Locke, or, you know, uh, great exponents of uh, freedom. And then John Locke, uh, in fact, wrote uh, the constitution uh, for the state of Carolina. And uh, when you look at what John Locke wrote about the state of freedom and religion Carolina constitution, I found it much more 
inferior to what probably Genghis Khan thought about in his uh, Mongolian state. So, why do you want to talk about it? The untold narratives in you know world history where best things have happened and best things have happened and the best experiences have emerged the untold narrative is more important for us and the untold narratives if they come become the uh, the prominent narratives and i think uh, uh, the much of much of the called hegemony which the world writing on history and philosophy and science probably will will become very different a recent american philosopher called i think richard rorty said i have nothing to learn from the from the east or, or asia meaning that by that the asian experience is a very subordinate quality that's why they still keep saying world history as i said began from greek rome and then traveled through europe and that's where it ended the narrative must change not because it is west against east, but because the, the treasure house of human experience in different civilizations, they matter. If they do not matter, then I think constitutions do not matter. And if constitutions do not matter, I don't think rights and freedoms do matter. Therefore, we, are, we have to probably look at all of them from, from different prisms. Uh, there's probably I could keep uh, talking about right, reading from this book, but but that it makes painf painful reading to read about what, how human beings, in the name of religion, and, and unleashed oppression and violence and extermination. Uh, I think therefore it is important for us, not necessarily through what is touted as a uh, division between secular and religious. That takes me to another small aspect I would like to talk about it and conclude my speech. Because uh, the Indian Supreme Court, again in the context of Hindu religious institutions, have uh, talked about, even in their recent Sabarimala judgment, have talked about the essential religious practice. And as if the court or the judges or law possesses that wisdom of knowledge, which, which you can, like, a, uh, like a entering into a laboratory, you have that kind of a knowledge and wisdom by which you can say, this is essential and this is not essential. This is secular and this is not, uh, you know, non-secular. This secular versus religious is again a product of experience of the West in the context of oppression and exterminations. Even though India cannot be said to be free from the, the you know, squabbles and the strifes which happen between different, different sampradayas. Vaishnavites have fought Saivites, Shaivites have fought Vaishnavites, and then there have been, even Jains have been probably thought to be uh, oppressed. These histories have happened, but they did not go beyond the crescendo. They did not become the majority, uh, you know, uh, voice or, the, or the, the, the rule of law. So they were there as part of human adjustments, or the Indian civilization adjusting itself. So while it has adjusted to over a period of four to five thousand years, and essentially going through the bhakti movement, I think uh, we have a lot of, lot of things to share with the rest of the world. So the secular versus non-secular, essential versus non-essential is again a very dry debate. And uh, I think uh, we need to go a little more deeper into this question and say, if I understand that what I practice every day from morning to evening gives me that kind of a consolation and a solace and contentment as a human being, and that is essential for me, it may not be essential for you. Therefore, what is essential for me as an individual is important. And then if essential for some of us becomes important as a group, 
it becomes a sect or a group or a sampradaya. That's how sampradayas grew in our country. So the essential versus unessential etc. I think also is a debate which must be closely looked at. I am being part of some uh, exercises in, in the recent times in looking at uh, the law relating to religious uh, establishments and uh, uh, a kind of a debate going on that we need a, a lot of liberate Hindu religious institutions from state control. I think all these debates are important. So we must not again bring into these debates the uh, called Hindu versus Islam or the Islam versus Christian. I think it's more, we must go beyond that. That's why when, when, when the constitution is, is transfigured in this manner and um, we would probably be equipping ourselves in a much more saner and civilized way than entering into stripes which may probably lead us to uh, what has happened in some of the neighboring countries. I think we'll be very, very careful about that. And with that, uh, I will conclude uh, my uh, interaction with you today.